Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. It's the end of season one. Yeah, which feels so strange to say out loud. We recorded <laughs> um, so many episodes and we've done this for like a whole half of a year, basically, or a little bit more, right, Margaret? Yeah, I think you and I talked about this be- off recording that we did 16 episodes which corresponds with the 16 week semester which is maybe the most niche academic decision to make with a podcast (laughs) we can claim that we did that on purpose and it wasn't happenstance we were just that organized we're like yeah it's gonna be 16 weeks it's it's just some numerology stuff for for everyone out there yeah yeah, so um, maybe we're going to chat just kind of about uh, what we gained from doing this uh, these last few months uh, and what our plans are for next season and then also um, what our dream literature pedagogy course would look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to put you on the spot. What some end of semester reflections. What have you gained, Paige? Um, end of semester reflections. So I think that I've gained something in terms of like being more available to like put myself out there. We've talked about before that academia can be a really isolating thing. Imposter syndrome can keep you from, I don't know, not to be super cheesy, but taking the shot, right? Mm-hmm. And so this has been a really sort of fun, rewarding, but also scary kind of thing because we're putting our ideas out there for better or worse. And I think I've gotten more comfortable with that. Yeah. But the idea of like brainstorming as a community rather than making it, trying to make it perfect behind closed doors and then hearing it. I feel like we have done a lot of spitballing. on record. I like that. I didn't think of it that way. I was really thinking about it in terms of teaching. So I like that you took it that way because it does make me realize that this podcast has made me think a lot more about the digital humanities. Like I thought that I was someone who was already interested in it, but doing this and thinking about how academia enters the digital world, not just like as a digital project, but how do we have these discussions, these networks? I've been thinking a lot more about, and I don't have anything smart to say about it yet, but it's just really made me think about how academia is going to transition to the 21st century, which I think has also been compounded by the fact there's a pandemic, which has moved us all online. Yeah. And that's like one of the asides to this is that we've had this standing meeting, we've had these commitments to do something. And that's been really helpful during this time where you're not always going to campus, you're not always seeing people. And I mean, that also has been very important to me. Yeah, I don't see coworkers right now. Like I am teaching all that, but campus is a ghost town because of everything and so I'm I realized I was so used to having academic conversations like in the hallway like hey what are you doing like right now what projects are you working on blah 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 and I see those happening on Twitter but you 
just because of like word counts, it's not the same sort of interaction. So it's been nice to have at least one person to just geek out with and be like, that sounds so cool. Yes. That's like, tell me more. Yes, I agree. It is a nice reminder that all of this is like a community that ideas don't exist in vacuums. They don't have perfect. Yeah. Have we talked about this before? I, I just was talking about it with one of my students, which is why it's in my brain, that there is, I can't remember if he's a writer or researcher or what, but he talks about how computers have kind of increased that perfectionism, that expectation of perfection off the bat, because it's so easy to delete your mistakes. So you never have to sit with them. And so like in terms of writing, you start writing and when you feel like you're getting off task, you're not doing it just right, you delete it rather like with handwriting it or even a typewriter, you sometimes are forced to go ways you didn't anticipate and return later. And it's been making me think a lot about that too. Like how, like on one hand, how do we enter the digital sphere, but also like how do we not have these expectations of perfection off from the outset. Definitely. Um, yeah. I've not heard that before. I think just thinking about it, like I have a lot less anxiety if I'm writing on paper versus like typing. Whoever this man was, he was also talking about how he has a collection of typewriters. And at the beginning of that, I was like the collection of typewriters. And by the end, I was like, I think I need to buy a typewriter. <laughs> like <laughs> the last thing I need is more stuff. <laughs> but maybe you need a typewriter. I might need a typewriter. I think Andrew would lose his mind if I was click clacking away <laughs> all day. Click, 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 click. I can be a violent typer just like with my computer, you know, when I'm really busy. So I feel like I would be very loud with a typewriter. Yeah. One of the other things I was excited with this podcast, just to pivot, is it's also, I feel like it's going to be more conscientious as like when, when developing a syllabus of really thinking about my objectives and sort of that Bloom's taxonomy, which we might circle back to, but, and not just, oh, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I like. This is what I'm working on right now. And that's something I've always tried to do, but thinking of this podcast, I feel like it's just given me more skills and approaches to be more conscientious with it. Yeah. And I think also it's in a way made me like, there's like a slowdown process, right? Where like in, in the sort of like craziness of grad school or the craziness of teaching four classes or five classes or whatever, you're, you're like, you know, you're churning out a syllabus and it is something you've maybe been thinking about for a while or working on. But really a lot of times you're doing that like in the weeks before classes start. And for me, I didn't have like I might have some notes, but I didn't have any sort of like real like works in progress, uh, um, things to return to. And so I think that like, even just being able to use our ideas as resources later, right. Um, so that I can remind myself like, yeah, I wanted to teach something on William Faulkner. What was I talking about then when we were, we were doing it and, and it's a slower, like less hectic process, I think in some ways. Yeah. I think that's something our students never don't realize is that one, we mostly don't get a lot of control over what classes we get to teach as like junior instructors and scholars, but two, we often don't find out until a month or so before we're teaching them. And sometimes that can change. Like I've been prepping for classes that 
may or may not happen this spring. That depends on student enrollment. It depends on a lot of other strangest things. So um, yeah, that last minute turnaround it makes it a lot harder to <laughs> be conscientious and thorough. Yeah. So do we, what, was there anything else you wanted to talk about like that you got from doing this? I'm sure, but I can't think of it. How about you? Yeah, no, I think, I think we covered a lot of big things. Community, uh, being better teachers. I also, it's just been a good reminder of we are both talkers. Like that question, do you have anything else you want to say? I'm like, well, always, but because <laughs> I need to say. Yeah, so I mean, that's why we said, you know, uh, we were originally going to add this episode to the end of the evals, the last evals episode. And I'm like, you know, that'll be really long because even if we shoot for 20 minutes, it's not going to be 20 minutes. Well, it's uh, always a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? We're not apologizing for that. We're fine with No, that. I'm really, really excited, though, for season two. I feel like we've gotten our feet wet. We figured out what we like doing with this, what maybe we won't repeat. <laughs> but, um, and as you said in the beginning, I've just gotten more comfortable. Like, I didn't expect it to be so scary the first two episodes of, like we were in that nice little bubble. I can't remember if we've ever mentioned in the episodes themselves about our recording process, but we recorded the first few episodes before uploading them just to make sure uh, we could be consistent with them. And it was so fun, so fun, so fun. And then uploading them was like screeching break. So like, <laughs> what are we about to do? <laughs> um, but season two, at least for me, that anxiety sort of, gone and it's just now I'm really excited to have fun with it yeah I I agree 100% um I definitely don't have that anxiety anymore and I'm excited for season two also I think we've got some like fun ideas I always think we have fun ideas though so (laughs) do we want to shout out some of the things we're gonna cover yeah I mean maybe we the first one is we want to talk about flipped classrooms because we're both working on flipped classroom models for the spring in our comp classes so we want to think about that in a literature class which might be really relevant to people teaching high in the spring yeah and I know I think you and I both have this experience that before this past semester everything I'd ever heard about flipped classrooms from other scholar teachers and scholars was really negative of just like, oh, that's for people who aren't good at lecturing. And so I never had really sought it out further. But after this fall, you and I talking about it more and doing some exploration, I think I'm really excited to dive into it. So if, if people who are listening have maybe not heard the best things about flipped classrooms, maybe we can change your minds in season two. Um, yeah. I actually had not heard that. So, oh, I, I saw it a few times where it was like people kind of knocking that it was for professors who like aren't charismatic or professors who aren't comfortable lecturing. I don't know. It was like very much seemed like a not positive is what I saw. Interesting. But after, but after really exploring, it, I think it has so much potential. I think it was, a, it's, a, it's an unfair write-off. Yeah. So that's one thing we're going to talk about. We're also going to talk about, uh, well, what's one of the things you want to shout out, Margaret? I'm excited about a lot. I'm thinking about one that I don't want to shout out just yet. Teaser, teaser, teaser. 
But I am really excited, I think, for the episode we're going to do on teaching motherhood, since both of us have studied it. And I think I'm just really excited because our approaches are pretty different from one another. And I'm excited to hear how you teach it and dive in deep. And um, I've mentioned this to you in the past, whenever I present about motherhood or teach about motherhood, I'm always asked like, so how are your kids? I don't have any children. <laughs> and like motherhood is not an issue just for moms. Um, like the way we as a culture and as academia really dismiss mothers and the way we erase mothers from the literary canon is crazy, especially with everything we've seen, like with the Me Too movement, with like discussions about feminism and working moms, and it still feels like it's something so overlooked. So I'm really excited for that episode. Yeah, I'm excited for that one too. I am a mom, so. Yeah. But. So we barely allow you in academia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have I have comments, but I'll keep them <laughs> So yeah, I'm also excited that we're we've we've planned to have like a few more guests next mm-hmm. semester or next season. Obviously, like just like the 16 weeks, it every season lines up with a semester. So yeah, yeah. I kind of like calling them semesters instead of season. Do we do that semester one? That or is that just like two? Two gimmicky? I don't know. Okay. We'll sit with it. We can sit with it between semesters. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So let's talk about our dream literature pedagogy course. Yeah. So all semester, all season, we've been talking about what's our dream course and giving out different dream courses. And we figured we should wrap up not with our dream course, but our dream pedagogy course to really think about, well, okay, with all this discussion about teaching, like how would we teach flip teaching? And the thing I kept coming back to as I was ruminating over this was ethics. I think there is such a lack of talks about ethics when it comes to being an authority figure in a classroom. We get like the, it's it's always student focused of like your student shouldn't plagiarize, your student shouldn't do this. And there's less discussion about the role of the instructor or what sort of conversations to have in the classroom. Like I was even thinking like you could talk like focus on the ethics of research, the ethics of representation. Um, like, so how, how do you build an ethical reading list for your, for your class? And not to say like, oh, you have to censor. Like, I think there's, I definitely teach books that I don't stand by the politics of them, but they're in a larger framework. Um, and the ethics of like citation and beyond plagiarism. And so I was thinking, like, I think I mentioned this essay before because I love it, but, like, really grounding it in Sadia Hartman's Tale of Two Venuses. Yeah, yeah. And thinking of some other texts, but, yeah, I think I'd want my literature pedagogy class to be class on ethics, the ethics of teaching in a lot of yeah, ways. I, I really like that. I think it also sets up nicely. Just thinking about, like, some of the questions or problems you face when you first start teaching and you first start teaching literature classes and, like, how do I manage? How do I balance? What are the right questions to ask? And I think, like, focusing on ethics sets you up to start asking the right questions. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, yeah. like, how do we break the cycle of toxicity? Like, in a, not that all of academia is toxic, but 
there are toxic behaviors. And a lot of times we continue them just because it's all we know that it's like, well, this is how I was taught. So I think just to present other models that so you don't get a syllabus of just the same straight dead white men that have always been taught. Um, so you don't silence your students in the classroom. Also, even like thinking about the ethics of feedback that you give your students. Like I've had students tell me like the most horrific things that teachers and professors have told them in the past. And I hear the comments. And I know that the professors and teachers like just think they're doing their job when they tell them their comments, like they aren't on the surface level malicious. It's not like they're attacking the student as a person, but they're not giving constructive back where it's, there's nothing about how to improve. And I think a lot of times it's because they, those instructors assume that that should happen in a comp class, not a literature class, but to know how to read, you have to know how to write, and to know how to write, you have to know how to read. Like, they're so tied together, and academic writing is so particular that I'm still learning how to do it. I'm still, like, being told that's not actually how this works. So I don't know how we expect undergrads to know how to sign those. figure it out. Yeah, that was a bit of a rabbit hole, but what about you? What have you been thinking for well, I didn't think about it in terms of ethics at all. I thought about it like, wow, I... A, would not feel qualified to teach other people how to teach literature. <laughs> and so if I were doing this, it would be about crowdsourcing. I think I was oh. thinking about like, you know, having A, teaching literature is such a broad stroke brush, right? It's like, this is why we have a podcast on teaching literature. Every episode is entirely different. Um, yeah. And so there's not a, a model or, or one right way to do things. And so thinking about myself when I first started, like as a graduate instructor and moving from comp to literature, something that would have helped me was to have some guidance on finding, like again, like we started in the first episode, like, talking about how I really like resources, but figuring out my resources, like what I'm interested in, what kind of approaches I want to take. And so I would really start like if this were a workshop or something by having people come up with their, their own list of sources, right? An annotated bibliography of everything you need. And then doing some sort of crowdsource assignments where we have a Google doc and people put all of the data, like the, the, syllabus banks that they find online and sort of yeah. normalizing that, that no one's starting from zero um, and that people are finding like people that have done it before them and taking some from that and making it their own. And you're, you're reaching out to people who, who've taught the same classes as you to see what their syllabi look like and, and so on and so forth. And so I think that that's how I would sort of approach it in this really sort of practical, right? Like, mm -hmm. let's start with what you need to read, where you can find your resources, how you would build, not, you know, uh, reinvent the wheel, but how you would build something from the sort of scaffolding that's already there so you can get some found, like some footing. And what does that look like practically? And then it might be having students or, or fellow junior faculty instructors graduate students whatever jumping in like peer groups for the entire semester so you know come up with an assignment that you would attach to this particular reading right because even something yeah. like figuring out how discussions work in a literature class can be very daunting and so you can try out your techniques with your peer group and get some feedback on how that works because you know as well as i do 
that you'll try an assignment or an approach for discussion or whatever it might be. And, you know, it fails and you realize right away why it failed. And if you'd had an opportunity, right, your opportunity was in that class. Um, but and it, I don't want to say you let the students down, but it is, you know, it doesn't it's that feel discomfort good. of having to figure it out on the fly of like, yeah. okay, how do I pivot? How do I pivot? <laughs> working. Um, and so then like having the opportunity to, to test run some things, right. And to do it in a way that's not about an evaluation, right. Because that's normally where you get the feedback. Yeah. When something's not working, it's from your students evaluating you, from you being able to be reflective and figure out what's wrong or from a superior or, you know, sometimes a peer, right? Um, yeah. you superior evaluating your performance. Um, and I think that a, like this potential as a class is to sort of test run some of these things um, or some of your ideas and get some feedback in the moment. I really like that idea too of crowdsourcing from the beginning and to and sharing assignments to destigmatize that sharing because so often people get really precious with their material teaching materials and you and I have talked about this before that you and I could be given the same reading the same activity to our students and it would be two very different classroom experiences because we're different people. Um, we have different focuses and we're going to end up focusing on different parts of the text with our students or giving them different types of feedback and both can be super productive, but they're just, even if we were given like the same PowerPoint, the way we it would be delivered would be so different. Um, and so I think realizing that like sharing materials doesn't mean necessarily like totally standardizing a class or like losing your own personality or like losing, I don't know. And I think there's still some ethics, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, like for example, um, Asley has a database of syllabi that are available. So ethically, like those syllabi are being made available to other people. It's crowdsourcing and you don't have to feel oh, I'm being a terrible person because I'm not building this syllabus <laughs> from scratch, right? That's different than, you know, finding someone's professional website, <laughs> you know, taking their stuff and not reaching out or not saying anything, not knowing them. And so there are some ethics to that as well, I think. Yeah, definitely use resources that are meant as resources, which there's a lot out there. There's a lot of different like institutions and, and whatnot. I, and I think I talked to you about it in our book club recently, like the Marion Moore archives have like teaching materials and things like that. That was one of the things too, when I was working on my dissertation and having to reach out to get permission for like copyrighted material, like from archives and whatnot. I was reaching out to the people who were directly connected to these writers, um, a lot of like family members. And the responses for quite a few were, oh my gosh, I just love it when people talk about my mom's work. <laughs> like, yes, please share that. There are people who are excited, enthusiastic to have these materials shared. And like, you can, th that's not an example of like easily finding it, but <laughs> they're there and available and people are really excited to share their passions. And so. Right. And also like, again, the, the ability to 
build community, right? Because it's flattering if someone finds your syllabus on your website and then they email you and say, hey, I saw this. I really like what you're using. Do you mind if I if I use it as well? And then usually you have someone that is also you know, excited about the same things that you're excited about. On the flip side, I was once at a conference where um, I saw someone's name on a panel. I was like, I teach her article to my students like every semester. I was so excited. Um, And I was a creep because we were in the bathroom at the same time and washing hands. I'm like, are are you so-and-so? Um, I teach your work every semester and my students love it. <laughs> she was like excited because she's like, you never hear when your articles or essays or books are taught in a class. So it's like when you do academic writing. So, but I was like afterwards, I was like, maybe don't geek out in a bathroom, Margaret, like yeah. pick a better time and place. <laughs> do it on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, as someone that you know, I don't love compliments. They make me feel incredibly uncomfortable. And so like, if you send me something via email, I'm like, okay. But if I had to talk to you about it in the bathroom, I'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Please leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) It was very nice. But like thinking about, um, like letting people know, not just when you maybe use their course materials, but also like if you're using their scholarly materials, that that's especially, um, I feel like I've been seeing lately, like more people popping in on Zooms, like, oh, if you're teaching my article, if you're teaching my essay, I'm happy to talk to your students, where if you do that sort of reach out, like that could be cool. Oh, going down a rabbit hole now I'm like oh that would be so fun to do with the um critical response like have students like write flash essays to to a a scholarly article but then have like that sort of conversation with them so that way they come to the to the class prepared ahead of time with thought that that would also teach them like how do you talk at conferences like how do you actually ask questions to the presenters and not just say this is more of a comment So I could benefit from that too, probably. Oh, definitely. I often, I don't have the problem of the comment necessarily, but I have the problem of I sit there and I'm just like, that was really smart. Yes. Same. <laughs> I, always my, I always figure out what my questions are after, you know, like too late, it's over. And I'm like, oh. yeah, I'm always really impressed by the people who have the thoughtful comments in the mo- or questions in the moment. I, I don't. Th- and I think though that that's largely because that's not taught in, in literature classrooms. Like if we're talking about literature pedagogy, like really teaching students how to engage, not just with the literature, but with the criticism and, and thinking about how thinking of it as a discussion and not just as something they are meant to absorb and regurgitate. Right. Yes, definitely. Exactly that. Engaging with the criticism ourselves. That another episode Paige and I are having in season two is sort of like a book club, I guess. (laughs) That the anthology approaches to teaching Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and other work, other works, it was published in 1996. And they are releasing like a new edition, like with new essays, art, uh, chapters, all of that, probably in a couple of years, but <laughs> the process is starting. And so we thought it'd be really fun to do an episode on just that, like approaches to teaching at with the Handmaid's Tale and other works, but through this anthology. So it's edited by Sharon R. Wilson, Thomas B. Friedman, and Shannon Hengen. And it was the publisher is MLA, the Modern Language Association, but it was pretty easy for us to find it online. Um, I, I don't think 
Yeah, so it's, it's readily available. So for anyone who would be interested in reading the essays ahead of time. Hmm? It's pretty inexpensive also. Yeah, yeah, because it's been out for a while. So you can get a used copy. My copy is used. I believe there's um, not too many markups, but there are some, which is always exciting. But yes, yeah, so for, so for anyone who wants to read them, absorb them, and kind of read along with us, um, um, we want to make sure you have time to get your hands on a copy and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So we'd love to include emails, tweets, all of that in the episode where we discuss it. So please feel free to share your thoughts with us once you read and digest. It's going to be, I think like our last episode of yeah. next So season. it'll be, you have plenty of time. I think we're going to post it in August. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're super busy right now with 2020, don't worry. <laughs> you have like eight months, but we want to give you a heads up now. Um, and if you want to teach an Atwood class in the spring, I mean, in next fall. Yeah, that would be so exciting. I want to teach an Atwood class in the fall. Yeah, me too. Well, I guess we've reached the end. For now. For now. So <laughs> we will see everyone in season two. Um, should we tease the first episode of season two? Yeah, let's do it. So our first episode is going to be on teaching civil rights in a literature class. And I think we're going to be taking a few different angles on this and, and what we mean by civil rights in a literature class, fiction, nonfiction, action. Oh, yeah. God, I'm really excited um, for that episode. All right, Margaret. It's been yeah. fun. It's been fun. I will talk to you next episode and not before. <laughs> Actually, you know what? We're going to hang up and talk to each other again. So it's fine. <laughs> Bye. Bye.